Can Joe Biden remember, uh, what's her name again? COVID relief stuck at the post office. Trump gets a historic foreign policy deal done and white privilege training for nuclear scientists. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Honored to be here with you. It's going to feel a bit more like a Friday in the way that we do the show today because I'm out tomorrow flying down to North Carolina, going to go see some friends, do some stuff, give a little talk, come out to the coast, have a few laughs. The East Coast, of course, North Carolina, but should be a really good, uh, really good time down there. Um, I'm looking forward to coming back with tales of traveling during the pandemic oh my gosh buck you were on a plane how are you still alive i think it's all gonna be okay folks you know you just one foot before the other you know you lace up your shoes you put on some pants hopefully a lot of days lately i feel like i haven't really been putting pants on just boxers walking around the apartment uh but you got to just keep going forward keep moving all right we got a lot to get to today and we've got some fantastic guests planned as well But the thing that's really catching my eye at this point is the incredible and the furious, feverish rewriting of history from all the people in the media, all the people in the media uh, and the Democrat Party who are rewriting the history of Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, all of it. Right. It's like we haven't seen anything. We, we have there's nothing about this that we already know. There's nothing that doesn't add up. It's it's just simply bizarre. I mean, a year ago, even Democrats could see that Biden was in cognitive decline. And the only people who wanted Kamala to be president were journos. Now they pretend none of that actually happened. It's almost impressive to watch the libs fake tears of joy for this ticket of political mediocrities this is the ultimate version in politics of running the also rans running the people that never really get it done not at the national level i know you'd say oh buck but biden's won his senate race so many times look delaware is a lovely place great beaches very nice people but politically winning in delaware is a little bit like being the governor of rhode island you know it's not No no one's going to clear the streets out and make way for the governor of Rhode Island. You know, it's anyway, you you see what I'm saying. Kamala Harris won in California, won her Senate seat. But that's just being a machine. That's just being a a cog in the Democrat machine, really. You know, it's only Democrats win there. So there's they they get to just pick. And that's really what happened. So she had a a relatively tight primary. I, I actually know her history a bit with this, but. Not impressive. I'm not impressed when you have been in uh, public office in California and just sort of stay the course and eventually make your way up to being senator as a Democrat. I think that's a lot of people do it who are not impressive at all. So we look at the big the big shot, the big race uh, for the presidency and Joe Biden, as you know, I mean, you go back a little bit in history and you very quickly find out that Joe Biden has a, a, a stunningly 
unimpressive record of trying to be president in the past, right? They, they have Biden, whose mental state has now become a point of fierce partisan discussion. It wasn't always so, as I told you about a year ago. It was clear to a lot of journalists, including libs, who wanted other Democrat candidates to win that Biden wasn't up for this. Um, so they were willing to point it out then that, that Biden was past his prime. And for a man who's lived his entire life in the public eye, it's impossible to miss Biden's habit of saying things that are, are barely coherent and often absurd. Yeah, you know, I was there and Corn Pop came along and he was like, hey, man. And I was like, hey, and I was like, I got this chain and it's rusty and I'm going to I'm going to wrap this chain around that pole and show you I'm tough. And Corn Pop was like, whoa, look at how blonde your leg hairs are, man, from the sun bleaching them. That's crazy. Maybe some kids can touch your leg hairs because that's weird. Remember all that? We, we should break. We, we, you know what, Producer Mark, we're going to have to start pulling the old Biden clips out. We're, we got to have them ready. Almost like drops in radio, you know, when someone will play a. Another one like that's a that would be a drop that we could do that uh, there should be drops from Biden's past. We could call it Biden dropping the ball or something. I mean, he's just not not somebody that anybody would think should be in a role of gr- of greater responsibility and greater authority at this point. But Democrats are saying, oh, no, he is. In fact, there's a, a forced jubilation at this Harris-Biden ticket. And people are trying so hard to be like, oh my gosh, Biden and Kamala, this is amazing. These are the, these are the ones we've been waiting for. Oh my God. No. No, they don't really think so. While Biden was Obama's vice president, the weaknesses that he had were apparent, but it was far easier for the national media to cover them up or ignore them. The president, you know, is a heartbeat away from the presidency. But as long as that heart keeps beating, the VP is mostly a walking, talking life insurance policy for the chief of the executive branch. Right. Depending on the administration, we know the VP can be a real player in policy or be celebrated uh, or sorry, relegated to the ceremonial, not celebrated uh, to the ceremonial in the mundane. Nobody really remembers much in the way of accomplishments for Biden during his eight years as vice president because there really weren't any. The most important part of his portfolio, oh, Trump just got a big foreign policy victory today. Media is not going to celebrate it, though. But Biden was supposed to be a foreign policy guy. That was an unmitigated disaster for both of Obama's terms. The Obama team, you know, they picked Biden as VP because of his decades in the Senate handling foreign affairs And all that that record shows, if you look at it, if you look at Biden's record, you see he was reliably, consistently, egregiously wrong on every major foreign policy question of the last 30 years, 36 years in the Senate, I think. Uh, Didn't make a difference. They didn't care. They're like, yeah, let's make him VP because, I mean, Obama had zero foreign policy experience. Let's not forget, Biden was also a longtime third fourth tier finisher in presidential politics his first attempt was back in 1988 right the soviet union clung to its last gasps of global power then the coolest gadget you could get was a walkman and if you were really cool like me you had a walkman that had a little thing on it you pressed that was no skip Ooh, now i can walk now i can actually walk with my walkman pretty fast and it won't skip Biden's 1988 shot at the presidency was ignominious. It collapsed in accusations of resume inflation, speech plagiarism, 
He actually claimed to have marched in the civil rights movement, only to later admit, no, he hadn't actually marched in it. Fans of Biden politely call this tendency to make stuff up embellishments, my friends. Lies would be more accurate. Another one. Biden ran for president again in 2007. He was unable to get past fifth place in the Democrat primary. He dropped out. He was never able to get more than 1%. 1% of the primary vote, folks. 99% of Democrat primary voters back in 2007 were like, not that guy. He's a loser. Okay, this is reality. I'm not making up these numbers. These are all true. This is all real. I mean, his name in the polling then was right alongside bizarre curiosities in the Democrat field, like Dennis Kucinich, a man whose biggest contribution was to talk like this real high. You know, yeah, we're going to create a United States Department of Peace to work against the Pentagon. Yeah. Remember Kucinich? Biden was right alongside him. I went to a small event. That was really easy to get into in D.C. Just as a sheer curiosity, I was working at the CIA at the time, and I just got invited to some event where it was uh, like a cocktail hour with presidential candidates, but it was the guys that weren't going to win and nobody cared. And it was Biden, Kucinich, and one or two other people that I can't even remember. Biden has always been a third-tier politician with a fourth-tier mind. But then the Obama team knew that they needed uh, to add a little bit of foreign policy experience, a little bit of gravitas to that ticket. So now Joe Biden wants the top job again, and he actually might get it, which is quite a commentary on American politics. Despite the surge of socialists like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren back in the 2019 primary, we all know the Democrat faithful were told to go for Biden at the last minute. Right. It was it was clear we had candidates drop out. It was all orchestrated. The machinery of the DNC decided to get everybody in line. You need politicians who will do what the left wants while keeping Wall Street, Hollywood, the tech oligarchs, oligarchs, as Bernie calls it, happy. We all still know that Biden is the quintessential middling senator from Delaware. His clear limitations somehow failing this time around to limit his rise. And as we've seen, his campaign is going to be this very tightly scripted stage managed presentation. Biden from the basement in Delaware, always wearing a mask. Oh, I see all these journos standing alone. They've got the microphone in their hands out in an empty street. Got to wear a mask while they're doing their. Why would you do that? That's right. This is about signaling virtue and political signaling. It's solidarity with the lockdowners. Oh, but it's not political. No, now they're saying openly it is political. But back to who's supposed to be the most powerful figure in our politics. If Biden wins the presidency, my friends, he's going to be taking office at, what, 78 years of age? The guy's going to be 80 around the time of the midterms. In his first term, he's going to be almost 80 years old. Would 90 start to be an age at which people would question whether he's really up for this? For most of the opponents of Donald Trump, none of this matters, of course, because Biden is not Trump. And that's good enough. That's all it really takes. And they think he can win because they think they can fool voters in swing states in the Midwest, the industrial heartland and, you know, Florida, a couple other places convince enough of those voters you know come on it's just joe biden guys he's a moderate oh or in the case of kamala harris 
a pragmatic moderate. That's the new, oh, just a pragmatic moderate. Really? Senator from California. California is trying to make the Communist Manifesto come to life with every policy it passes every day now and has been doing this for years. We're going to act like a senator from a Democrat senator from California in 2020 is anything other than at best a Trojan horse for a far left socialist agenda, much more likely just an all out assault alongside the socialist agenda. None of this matters. The signs of Biden's cognitive decline, the lack of a meaningful political platform, the hyper controlled campaign that is a price the libs are willing to pay to get Trump out of office. There's also a widespread belief in political circles when the Democrats won't say aloud for fearing uh, for fear of scaring off independents and swing voters in key states. Biden is a Trojan horse candidate for the far left agenda. He is. For the agenda of AOC and the Democrat hardliners. His uh, pick as VP, uh, for VP of Kamala Harris is obviously meant to placate the left wing of his base and the identity politics that now rule the Democrat Party, the most powerful force within Democrat politics. Oh, no, the first is abortion. The second is identity politics. Though Those are the, the only things that are truly sacred. It's all about it's all about control abortion, identity politics, and the redistribution of wealth along social justice lines. Few will remember the predictions about the election in November that we make today, but observations can have a longer shelf life, right? And one that is difficult to avoid right now, no matter what your politics, it's the most straightforward observation of all. Joe Biden is not up for this. Even Democrats don't want Kamala Harris to be up for this. But the Democrat Party simply does not care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And just in case you're wondering how close Kamala and Biden are now. uh, The guy, it's going to be tough for him to even remember her name to get it right he's gonna be like oh kamala here you go play clip one that's what i asked kamala i asked kamala to be the last voice in the room it's his vice president and he doesn't know how to now her name is unusual let's because i thought this was so funny cnn and brad stelter was really upset i'm upset at brad stelter i look like zucker so i have a tv show uh, Brian Stelter uh, and, and, the, and the rest of the, the CNN moron squad. I actually think the, another one of their anchors, one of their interchangeable anchors was going after Tucker on this, too. And one of their people who's just paid to trash conservatives as though that's journalism. It's it's a pathetic life, but some people choose to lead it anyway. Uh, they were all pouncing. And actually, I think that's the proper. They were pouncing. Okay, they were. Oh my gosh! Because Tucker called her Kamala. I've heard plenty of people say it that way. And there's no, you know, some people think of it more like potato, potato. You know what I mean? You say things different. Tomato, tomato. You say things different ways. It is Kamala. And they went after Tucker and said it was disrespectful. You see, every attack on Kamala, no matter how either true or not really an attack it is, they're going to say is disrespectful, comma, 
because of sexism and racism. It, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, Kamala Harris was a, a, a dishonest person about her time as district attorney in San Francisco or as, or as a state attorney general in California or whatever. And it's just racist, sexist and like clockwork. Conservatives actually say in the last 24 hours, they've, they've been saying, just wait. Everything is going to be racist and sexist. And the libs are like, oh, yes, that's right. Everything is racist and sexist. They didn't even try to hide it. And the claim that Tucker mispronounced Kamala's name on purpose. You know, when Trump calls it MSDNC, you know, or, or, or MSLSD or whatever the different, you know, this is like very grade school stuff that we could all sit around and, and come up with, you know, oh, the communist news network, CNN. Yeah, I know. it's fun. I do it too sometimes, but you know, it's not exactly that clever. Uh, but that's clearly making fun of when you say Kamala and it's Kamala, like this is just a normal, you know, nor it's like spelling someone's name, a uh, name, John without an H, you know, people, I'm sorry. It's a busy world out there. I don't know that I'm always supposed to know whether you're John with an H or without an H. Pick one, everyone. Can we just pick one? Don't even get me started on Kristen and Kirsten. Okay, don't even get me started. But this was an honest mistake. One that is so honest that even Joe Biden, who has far less grounds to make this kind of mistake, made it the next day. Made it the next day. I just think it's so funny. Oh, my gosh. The... The, the one thing I can promise you is that there's going to be some real entertainment value from watching people who take themselves so seriously and have been lecturing the country or at least whatever audience they have in you know, lecturing one 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 thousandth of one percent of the country, you know, CNN, but, you know, lecturing the country constantly about how we need more, you know, we need adults in the room for our leaders and we need and then Joe Biden is basically going to walk onto the debate stage, you know, in his boxers with mismatched socks and, uh, you know, a, a pair of overalls wrapped around his head because he can't figure out how to get them on. And they're going to be like the greatest statesman of our generation, Joe Biden, everybody. Emperor Biden has no clothes, folks, except for the boxers and the mismatched socks. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kamala Harris comes from the middle of the road, moderate wing of the Democratic uh, Party, not the first choice of progressives, but Joe Biden thanking that this historic move as the first woman of color on a national ticket will overcome that. Middle of the road, little Stephanopoulos. I hope I hope his his paymasters over at ABC are, you know, patting him on the head, writing him big checks to do what the DNC tells him to do. Yeah. Oh, middle middle of the road, little Stefan Stephanopoulos says. Yeah, <laughs> sure she is. Uh, find me one middle of the road policy uh, other than locking people up for a while in high crime cities was a popular position. Biden's taken in the past. Kamala's taken in the past. You see, here's what you need to understand about Dem about Democrats in general on law and order and on public safety. They're not unwilling to use the state's force to take away people's freedom. As we see, they're willing to do it even for, I don't know, opening up a gym or perhaps not wearing your mask enough. Right. They, they're all about using the force of the state to get what they want. 
whether they actually will enforce the laws, use that force to make sure that public safety and, and criminal justice are, are priorities, right, is all dependent upon whether or not it's popular among their Democrat constituents at that time. So I'm not saying that they're, they're completely unwilling to ever have law and order, but right now the winds, the political winds within the Democrat Party are let people loot and riot a bit. Don't come down too hard on them. You know, we got to have a lot of hand-wringing over white privilege and everyone has to be constantly, oh, I'm so sorry about being white and it's terrible and we're just oppressing everybody. You know, that, that's, that's what the Democrat Party wants for the whole country and that influences the way people think about uh, criminal justice and law enforcement issues you know can cops really do their jobs which is going to involve cops putting hands on people and arresting and putting cuffs on and taking away freedom from people at least temporarily who break laws do the cops have public support for that democrats right now are a lot of them the ones making decisions, I should add, not the ones who actually live in these neighborhoods. That, that's this is a key distinction. The Democrat apparatus is all in this white guilt mindset of, oh, law enforcement is somehow because of the disproportionate impact, disproportionate number of arrests within the minority community. Law enforcement is ooh, we need it. We need to bl- let's blame the cops and let's pull back on law enforcement. When you actually go out and do some polling and talk to people including uh, our fellow Americans in poor parts of major cities, including uh, black Americans who want to just go about their lives in security and safety and decency and respect, like all the rest of us. A solid majority of them, 81%, 81%, according to the most recent Gallup polling, were saying uh, we want as many cops in the neighborhood, maybe more. Either more or what we got. We don't want less. And the other 20 percent, I got to tell you, I think have just been so influenced by by Democrat propaganda that they actually believe that cops are targeting them. And and which is a shame. It's not true. But that's the mindset. So I I blame the Democrat apparatus for spreading these lies. You know, I, I blame the Pelosi's and the Schumer's and the. You know, the Coopers and the Tappers and the Maddows and the New York Times, the Washington Post, they're the ones that are creating this perception that cops are the problem. But back to the way this is going to play out in this election, it's fascinating. You have Harris and Biden who at different times in their careers were the Democrat equivalent of of law and order candidates, which doesn't mean what what it should but they were the Democrat equivalent of that. And now they're running at a time when their party doesn't believe that the law should be enforced as it is without a constant eye toward the balancing needs of social justice or whatever. But Democrats have in the past wanted more safety and security. Even the left realizes at some po- at some point they're not there yet, but at some point the left realizes that when all the stores are being burned to the ground and when people don't feel safe and when people walk outside and there is a perception, you know, this is these are the intangibles. This is what I try to bring you. One of the things I like to talk to you about from my perspective here in New York, because I'm in the I'm in the middle of the largest city in the country. Some of you listening to this are also here, but a lot of you are, you know, vast majority of you are all over the country, all over. we got people listening in all 50 states and countries all over the world, not 
every country. That would be cool. I mean, Team Buck Turkmenistan in the house. But I don't know if we have anybody in Turkmenistan, but we got people listening in the UK and Canada and Ireland and South Korea and Afghanistan and Iraq. Thank you, military. Um, Syria. Still one of my proudest moments on the show when a a member of one of the SF teams came up to me and said they used to listen to this show as they were liberating Raqqa. That's uh, that that I'm not somebody who, who who tears up over things that are happy or that are proud that make me proud that was that was the closest i've been in a very long time anyway back to uh where was i on oh yes uh, what i'm trying to tell you about the intangibles of being in a city is that you can tell when the criminal element and there's a criminal element in every society there are people who are damaged who either choose evil or are so uh so damaged themselves that their ability to discern good from evil is mixed at best And when they feel like they have free reign on the streets or something closer to it, when they think that there's a, you know, what you want is a society where people commit crimes and believe, believe that they will be likely caught and punished. That's what you that that's what you want to have. And there are countries where that is absolutely the case. Uh, and they have very low crime rates and everybody realizes and, and even some authoritarian regimes. If you talk to people about what it was like, I remember when I was in Tahrir Square, uh, when there was all that tumult with the member of the Muslim Brotherhood took over, e- took over Egypt. And we had all kinds of problems going on. I was in Tahrir Square and there were uh, homeless encampments around it. And there was a real sense of menace on the streets. And I spoke to some of my Egyptian contacts there, some of my uh, my friends who were Cairo natives. And they were taking me around and showing me what was going on. And they just said, look, uh, the, the old regime was they were authoritarian thugs. But if you, you know, punched an American in the face, stole their wallet or their, their handbag and ran off with it and you were a street criminal, you thought it was likely that you were going to get caught and it was going to they were going to be rough with you when they caught you. And you did not want that. So that changed the perception. Once the uh, once the Mubarak regime was gone and the Muslim brother had taken over, they said, oh, no, now it's like it feels more like a free for all on the streets. The criminals, the same criminals that were there before, have the belief that they'll likely get away with it. And that just creates a cascading effect. That was true in Cairo. It's true in New York as well. It's really it's a corollary to the broken windows theory. When people believe they can get away with little crimes then they start to do enough of them that they feel a sense of uh, the the criminal element feels a sense of being empowered and they're more likely to commit more serious crimes. Uh, You've already you've already uh, broken in and done a burglary. Maybe next you want to rob a bank. You've already been uh, illegally selling. I I don't know. You've already been illegally selling um, marijuana. Now is not really even a crime in New York. So I'm trying to think of what would be a, you know, you're selling untaxed cigarettes. Maybe you decide to make your way up to selling, uh, a little bit of fentanyl on the side, you know, or, or prescription drugs uh, off uh, off label, off prescription, whatever, you know, illegally. And that that just you filter that out through uh, across the society and you can see how everything starts to collapse. And I'm telling you, I walk around New York now and everyone sees it. And there's news stories about it all the time. And when you're aware of people who are are a and you can only see when you're on the street, you can tell. All right. You know, these things, you know, in your neighborhood, people always have a sense. All beat cops that I've ever talked to in the past. And I have a, I have a beat cop in my family. I uh, spent decades w- walking the streets of major cities. 
And, and they'll tell you that you, once you spend enough time in a place, you just kind of get to know something's not right here. Something's off. Something is. Uh, and when you see individuals that you really can tell there's there's a sense of this is not, you know, they have ill intent. It's one thing when they're trying to hide it. It's another thing if they're more brazen and open about it. And again, that cascading effect. And that's what you're seeing in these cities. And it's because stopping those smaller things, preventing those broken windows, requires the interaction between law enforcement and whoever is doing that, irrespective of social justice or a history of discrimination or anything else out there. It's just you break the law, you, you do these things you're not supposed to do, there will be punishment for it. When that starts to fade, then all the other crimes start to become more pervasive. There's uh, an increase in them. And th all the literature will tell you this. This is just the reality around it. And this is what we're seeing right now. And Democrats, even like they call her Cop Kamala sometimes because she was such a, a law and order person in some instances for some things. Also willing to abuse the powers of her office on behalf of Planned Parenthood. She was essentially like a, a, a paid uh, hatchet woman for Planned Parenthood. Ooh. Hatchet, Planned Parenthood, I know. Sorry. Uh, but that's what was going on there. But now the Democrats, because of the mood of the apparatus of their party, put aside that they don't care really what's happening in these communities and what the people in the communities want. Because of the mood of the Democrat Party, they won't actually do what is necessary to enforce these laws and restore greater order, to shut down the riots, to shut down the looting. And then just the day-to-day criminality the day-to-day -day abuses and lawlessness on the streets that make everyone walk a little bit faster than they would want to feel a little less safe than they should democrats can't walk away from that now they won't you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast kamala you've been an honorary biden for quite some time you know, I came first to know who Kamala was through our son, Bo Biden. They were friends. They served as attorneys general at the same time. They took the same big, they took on the same big fights together. Kamala in California, Bo here in Delaware. Big fights that helped change the entire country. I know how much Bo respected Kamala and her work. And that mattered a lot to me, to be honest with you, as I made this decision. So now, we need to get to work pulling this nation out of these crises we find ourselves in, getting our economy back on track, uniting this nation, and yes, winning the battle for the soul of America. My fellow Americans, now let me introduce to you, for the first time, your next Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. There's a lot that I would like the journos to check into about all of this. For one, uh, the the idea that that Kamala Harris, the, the stories we've heard about the, the truly overt racism that she was subjected to, things like other other children in her community weren't allowed to, to play with her when she was a child. And this was in this was in Berkeley, California in what was it? I guess it would have been the 70s. Uh, I'm not saying she's lying. I'm just saying. The press corps should look into some of this. We should we should verify more of it. Oh, but we know they're not going to. 
And on Joe Biden, I think it's worth noting here that Joe Biden has and there are things that are beyond politics and the human uh, the human tragedies that Joe Biden has uh, suffered through the personal tragedies uh, where he's you know, he's lost. He lost family members in a car accident. He lost Bill Biden to, to brain cancer. Um, those are truly sad. And, and we we pray for for the departed. I mean, that's that's not a political thing. That's it. Joe Biden also has a particular habit of. I, I, I'm sorry, I've seen it, I've heard it talking about and, and even leveraging the personal tragedy for political purposes in a way that's really, you know, sleazy used lawnmower salesman stuff. It is. He's pretty shameless about it sometimes. Uh, he, he still would, would cling for a long time to, the, uh, to the, uh, the story that, you know, his family members, his, his wife and I believe his wife and, uh, and child were killed in a car accident because the other driver was drunk. It's not true. That's not true. And I can tell you that if and I believe the other driver wasn't even responsible for the accident. Yeah. So if you weren't responsible for an accident and somebody says that you were drunk and that you killed his family members, I think you'd be pretty horrified and you'd be right to be. But it's a more powerful story, you see, if if uh, Biden changed around that narrative. Remember who these people really are. Remember who Joe Biden and Kamala Harris really are. Kamala Harris was willing to in front of 15 or 20 million people watching, but also in front of a man's family, in front of Kavanaugh's wife and children, try to uh, rip him apart and accuse him of being a gang rapist. Accuse him of being a gang rapist based on zero evidence and based on an allegation that only, and I, I mean this, I mean this from, you know, the, 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 the center of the truth wheelhouse. Only a moron could have believed that. So Kamala Harris is either a moron, which I don't believe, or she is a shameless, a shameless, immoral person who is ruthless and will do whatever she has to do in order to help Kamala Harris's pursuit of power. That I do believe. That I think completely lines up. And on this point, even about Bo Biden, Bo Biden, who of his sons is the one who you know served in the military, and and people thought of as the heir to the Biden political legacy. And it's very sad he died of brain cancer. It's terrible. I think he served in Iraq. Uh, but to bring up Bo Biden as a as a connection to Kamala Harris again, I don't know if that's. An embellishment, which is what they say about the Biden record. But are we really to believe that the state attorney general in Delaware was working on a lot of the same challenges and really tight with the state attorney general in California? I mean, they might have met at like the attorney's general conference once or twice or something. But notice that there's this this fabrication or, or at least I think fabrication of narrative here. That isn't necessarily rooted in the facts. And here's one of the problems we have to confront. The lies will come at you so fast and furious. There will be so much dishonesty around the Biden-Harris ticket that it would be difficult even for the most, uh, the most observant political analyst to be able to pick out the falsehoods. 
It's just going to be an avalanche of BS until Election Day. And the media, not only will they not be fact-checking it, they'll be with the shovels and the BS. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why Kamala? Let's just deal with that one now, shall we? Why, why Kamala? Because, you know, we were hearing a week ago, Susan Rice, and you've also heard of, uh, what, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and uh, there, I don't know, there were some other names. Uh, I think Karen Bass, right? There are other, other names in the mix. And, yeah, we go with Kamala, which is interesting because she's already, she was already found insufficient by the Democrat base. By the, in the primary, couldn't even make it to the first round of primary votes. They didn't want her. They didn't want her to be president. And now she's going to kind of be president through the back door of being a vice president for a guy who everyone knows can't actually be president for eight years, can't really be president for four years. I don't think he, I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't make outlandish predictions. You know, you know I, I, I thought Hillary was going to win in 2016. Thank God I was wrong. I, I don't, I don't make outlandish predictions. Um, that was such a happy day, but it was a happy day of shock. It was kind of like when, when, when Trump won the election, it, for me, it felt like if somebody, you know, wins the lottery and instead of like dancing and crying with joy, they actually just pass out. <laughs> it was such a what? It was such a shock. And a lot of you are like, I told you, Buck, I told you for six months before. I know there were the I, I really should go through one day and all the emails, all the messages I got from the team Buck Faithful. Who were like, Trump's going to do it, man. Trump's going to do it. You, you, a lot of you saw it. And I, I, <laughs> to this day, I give you all credit for it. I don't make outlandish predictions, what I'm trying to say. And I admit when I'm right, I admit when I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> I don't think Biden, may, if he becomes president, I don't think he makes it through the midterms without um, stepping down for personal health reasons. And w- why would that be? W- w- who... How is that a bad look? How is that a bad situation? Because wouldn't you rather have incumbent Kamala, right? She becomes the incumbent then. She steps up, takes the job, running for her first term with two years, with all the money around her, all this stuff put together, right? Isn't that better? Doesn't it make sense? You get to be Joe Biden. You get to go down into history if you're Joe Biden and you do that as the guy who was the vice to the first black president for eight years and then the bridge for the first uh, minority female president for uh, for eight years uh, for well four years eight years whatever wherever it'll end up being right and if you're joe biden I mean, what could be a more with that legacy alone i mean the B- biden's heirs are going to be swimming in vaults of gold coins like scrooge mcduck they're going to be so rich the Democrat apparatus, though, all, you know, Jill, Dr. Jill Biden. OK, you guys can you're allowed to disagree with me on this. I'm sorry. A Ph.D. in education does not mean I'm going to call you doctor. Right. I, I, it is Jill Biden. I'm happy that she spent a lot of years getting a Ph.D. in education. It's not even like a Ph.D. in mathematics or something. A Ph.D. in education. <laughs> right now, I've got a bunch of I've got a bunch of masters and Ph.D. students in education going click. Gonna turn on Alex Jones. Alex Jones respects a PhD in education. Respects it. Unlike Buck Sex. Buck Sex is smug. I've seen that face before. Smug face. Yeah, look, he's a, he's a he's a he's a lunatic, but he is he is quite a <laughs> he's quite a show. That's for sure. Oh man, 
I'll, I'll arm wrestle him. Oh, yeah, we'll see who wins. We'll see who wins. You versus me. Let's go. Um, where was I? I, I went off into, into crazy land there for a second. Oh, yes, Kamala. Kamala and how she becomes. So I think that Biden really does step down. I'm telling this right now, steps down in the midterms. And I did get the Kamala prediction right, stretching back for a long time. But that's not a tough, and that was almost a coin flip. It was going to be Kamala or, well, no, it was like four or five candidates. But I knew it was going to be Kamala because the media, the apparatus loves her so much. And there's such a, there's so much Obama nostalgia. So much Obama nostalgia. And, and, I, and I also think it's interesting the way that we're going to be describing, because, you know, the Democrat Party, you know, you have, the, you have with Obama the first, the first black president, right? That's, he, he has that historic title. Um, with, and this, I'm not, this is not a criticism. I'm actually curious about this. We're going to refer to Kamala Harris as the first black female president. Should, shouldn't she also be referred to as the first Indian female president what you know and, and i mean this i just wonder how how in an identity politics world how is that so is the media just going to pick one that that they think is more is is more powerful for the narrative because she's as indian as she is black right so what's the how does that work you know the, I, i'm i'm i wonder if they're actually going to go with some kind of a you know an identity uh, a, a new term? I don't know. But to, to call her just the first black president and not to make mention the fact that she would, I, I think that's an, inter- again, not, this is not a criticism. It's just, I think through this and it, it is noteworthy to me that they're so comfortable. I've never heard her called the first, I've heard plenty of people say she'd be the first black female president. I've heard nobody say, except for Mindy Kaling, to be fair, in an interview, that she would be, or no, she didn't call her the first Indian American female president she said she's uh, you know south asian um as a politician i think i forget the context of the interview but no one ever says the first um, indian american female president and i think that's it why shouldn't that also be in the discussion you know i mean indian americans are a, a, a wonderful a wonderful part of our of our american family um I, I, I don't know. I just think it's, I think it's interesting that that's, that we're always hearing the one and we don't hear the other. But I, again, not a criticism, just uh, a note of interest to me. But why Kamala Harris? Going back into that. Why Kamala Harris? Uh, well, if you listen to Nancy Pelosi, she's like the best. She's the best. The, the best. Play 11. Kamala Harris is not only uh, the choice as an, a woman of color, a woman of color, she is the best person that Joe Biden could name. There are many people who would do no harm. There are many people who could be president. But to have those two combined with the person he had the comfort level with to serve, it's about governance, as your commentator said. It's about governance. So let's recognize her not only as the first woman of color to be vice president, but the best possible person he could have chosen uh, to, uh, uh, to proceed into this election and, of course, to win and serve the American people. A lot of focus on the identity politics stuff there. Why, why is she the best choice? What is in, let's look at this really, you know, we can actually have a real conversation. What makes Kamala Harris the best choice? It's really that people like Pelosi like her. They stylistically, culturally like her. 
right? Wall Street likes her. Um, the tech oligarchs like her. She's the liberal elites are are very pro and journos, of course, because journos are the are the poorly paid, generally speaking, the poorly paid uh, cousins of the liberal elites. Right. Journos are, you know, they're the kind of hangers on to the liberal elite because they're all, you know, unless they've got trust funds or something, they're, they're generally not making the kind of money that you know, Wall Street bankers and tech oligarchs are. Uh, so, but but there's not a focus on what is it that Kamala Harris brings? What vision? What policy? We don't even know. We don't even know what Kamala Harris brings to this. And, and I think it's worth noting that in the last election cycle, it was very clear that <laughs> here, here's an experiment before I say anything. I don't really just and be honest with yourself, because I can't. This is like a test where I'm not going to grade the or it's like homework where I'm not going to grade it, but I'm going to collect it. Uh, remember when they used to do that to you in math class? I hated that. I'm not going to give you a grade, but we're going to check it. And then I'd get all this red ink all over my math homework. I still, I still have nightmares about math class. The only thing in school that ever was not my thing. Um, anyway, but think about this. Who was ready for it? Who was Hillary Clinton's vice president? Oh, I know you, you probably got it right. You, you remember, but I come on now. I would bet. No, we'll never be able to check this. No, producer Mark, I'd ask you when I asked that, I'm sure you know who it was, but how long did it, did it, did it take you about three seconds to think that one through and remember? Honestly, I had no clue until this morning when I was doing show prep. <laughs> See, uh, one thing I will say, producer Mark is rock solid, honest always, which I love. Okay, so thank you. For, I mean, no, I'm sure if I would have thought about it, I would have remembered eventually. Oh, no, no, of, of course. But see, my, my point in this is not, it, it is that even for me, I work in, this is all I do all the time, Mark, right? And I I would have to think for about three or four, like I'd have to go, but wait, who was her vice president? You don't remember, right? And th- that's that was part of it, right? That was part of it. Kelly Ed Conway points this out, play play 17. Senator Harris cannot cure the flaws and the inadequacies at the top of the ticket. She can't do that. And I'd imagine that she is going to receive advice on how to go out there and run through the tape and campaign hard, but don't overshadow uh, Vice President Biden, which is so easy to do. He's overshadowed basically by almost everyone he comes in contact with. I gave him credit for doing something Hillary Clinton didn't do. Hillary Clinton picked one of the five people in the country who could not overshadow her. There weren't that many. Um, and he, she picked Tim Kaine, and people are struggling even this week to remember who she had chosen as her running mate. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. Tim Kaine, I, I, if, if I buzzed in on who was in Jeopardy, who was Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016, I did know the answer, but I'm not sure I would be able to get, I'm not sure that I'd get it out before the, eh, eh, you know, I'm not sure I'd be able to do it. So anyway, Mark, don't don't feel at all, uh, you know, at all put off by it, man. I had to I had to go. Oh, that's right. It was Tim Kaine. Now, go back and you think this stuff through. Here's another fun one. Who who was uh, you got to be honest, who was running as vice president for John Kerry? Right. Think about this. Vice presidents um, are not people who you generally think. Uh, you know, it was, it was John Edwards. John Edwards. I, I actually, I'm going to tell you this. I actually had to check to make sure I hadn't forgotten that one in real time. Um, it's, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning when you think back to how 
uh, challenging it is to remember who some of these candidates are. But there's a reason I'm going through this. Yeah, that's right. John Edwards, the guy who is like uh, paying off the lady who sells wind chimes or whatever uh, because she had his baby during the campaign. And he said he didn't cheat on his wife who had, was dying of cancer unless she until she was in remission. I mean, it folks, that guy you want to talk about slimy John Edwards. Wow. Right. He has wow level of slimy. And who broke? Don't ever forget this. Who broke the story of John Edwards, the philandering slime ball? The National Enquirer. The rest of the, the entire journalistic establishment, no idea. And they fought against it. They pretended it wasn't true. The National Enquirer broke that story. Pretty amazing. All true. All true. Um, Kamala clearly does overshadow joe biden in the minds of the liberal elites but here's the issue they in my opinion i guess everything's in my opinion because it's my my show but as you look at this ticket kamala harris is supposed to overshadow biden right they're they're supposed to have someone that get everyone excited because they're not excited about biden so with hillary it was they didn't want overshadowing they didn't want somebody and so they picked tim kane who you know who really even remembers that with with Kamala as the pick, it's supposed to be this is who your real president's going to be. And Democrats are desperate to believe that people will be excited about that. Here's the problem that I think they face. Nobody's excited about that except for the liberal elites. And they are so out of touch. Remember, they also were sure that Donald Trump was going to get crushed. So I actually feel pretty good for for our team, for our side with Kamala as the candidate, because. Democrats never learn from their mistakes, friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. These people are crazy, okay? And this is, uh, this is what we're getting. And it's amazing the way uh, Sleepy Joe buys into it. He buys into it like, oh, great. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And now you have a, a sort of a mad woman, I, I call her, because she was so angry and so such hatred with justice kavanaugh i mean i've never seen anything like it she was the angriest of the group and they were all angry they're all radical left angry people and they're angry because i beat them yeah. <laughs> they still haven't forgotten you know these are seriously ill people but um if you look at if you look at you know her record is a terrible record terrible record radical left angry people i i think that we are going to have quite a quite a contest on our hands here, friends, even though the country is going through a it is going through a catastrophe. A, a large part of the catastrophe is just the reality of dealing with covid. But there's also a serious component of this catastrophe. That's the response. And I would argue and will continue to argue the inept and overzealous, both inept and overzealous two descriptors for uh, for a government that you have to always remember. They're going to tell you what to do, you know, with, with with a ferocity and make you do it. And they're idiots. That's pretty much a definition for why we want to limit government and why we want to uh, make sure that there are safeguards in place from the abuses of power that are inherent, really, in, in any government system. It's a question of degree. It's a question of severity. But Trump is right. He's right that they're they're leftists and that this is part of the Biden uh, the Biden-Kamala uh, storyline you're going to be told is that they're pragmatic moderates. 
Yeah, how? Does, does, does any sane person think the Green New Deal is a pragmatic, moderate position? Does any sane person think that it's a middle-of-the-road position to have not just abortion all nine months of a pregnancy, but that there should be taxpayer funding for it and that we should continue to give hundreds of millions of dollars a year to Planned Parenthood? That, that's a middle-of-the-road position? No, these are just Democrat positions now. But the Democrats have gone, they're going to have quite a challenge here. They have gone far left, and they're going to try to convince Ameri- Americans that being far left is actually being centrist. That they've moved the Overton window of our politics so much that they are somehow magically now not on team crazy. And I've got to tell you, they are on team crazy. <laughs> I, I, I disagree. They are on team crazy. So that's where the president is going to have, and I, I, I think, a lot of ability to score points with the voters who matter. Remember, there's so much of this people talking about what is perception? What do the American people want? What do they want to vote for? It really ends up being about what do a couple hundred thousand people in a half a dozen different states think? Do they show up? And if they show up, who do they vote for? That is the dis- that's the difference maker. That's going to be the difference maker in this election. We're not going to have some big blowout. The blue states are going to stay blue. It's going to be just the contested states uh, that once again are are up for. I mean, I, I mean, when I of course always the contested states are what matters. But what I'm saying is, there's not going to. I don't think you're going to see a major surprise where a state that we think of as anything other than belonging to one party or the other goes the other way. I don't. I don't think you're going to see that. As much as Democrats all want to believe Texas is going to go blue, no way. No way. Oh, what else is Joe Biden going to do? Play 14. Everyone knows that if Biden gets in, this market's going to crash. He's going to build regulations and his taxes. He's going to tax people four trillion dollars Four trillion. That will destroy this economy, the likes of which nobody's ever seen before. Four trillion dollars in taxes. That is going to hurt things, isn't it? The flight from cities that are already overtaxed that the Democrats think they're going to fix by taxing more. That's just a a harbinger of things to come. If Democrats can do the federal level, they will. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of major cities, how do Democrats think they're going to fix them? What are they going to do? I just told you that they are planning on doing big tax increases. So that's, you know, shut down the economy largely for political reasons now. I mean, the the continued shutdowns are this is madness. This should not continue. This should not be allowed to continue. Uh, But they figure, well, the federal government will bail us out. What if the federal government doesn't? You know what they're planning to do? They're going to start raising taxes, taking more of your money at a time when the American people are already strapped. So we have the government pumping money into the system and then people who are already not able to make ends meet are going to be told, well, you also have to pay higher taxes. This is not good. This is not healthy for an economy. This is not going to make us wealthier or better off. But how, how are you going to fix the deterioration in the cities? How are you going to fix Chicago, New York, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco? Well, the mayor of Chicago has an idea. Play clip five. 
Those are the words of somebody who doesn't understand the first thing about local policing, doesn't understand the first thing about building authentic uh, relationships with members of the community. Case in point is, look at the disastrous efforts of the federal government under this administration in Portland. It didn't help. It hurt. It exacerbated problems. Mm -hmm. I'm not letting that happen in my city. Yes, of course, we have our challenges. But the thing that the federal government is uniquely qualified to do is things like pass common sense gun reform. Make sure that everybody has background checks. Stop the uh, uh, availability of assault weapons. People that are on a no-fi list shouldn't be able to get weapons. The list goes on and on. The things that could really help cities to stop putting guns in the hands of criminals, this president has shown an absolute abject unwillingness to even discuss, let alone move on. So I need a leader in Washington, D.C. who is willing to take on the gun lobby and do what's right for our children in our cities. That is not President Trump. We need Joe Biden. Yeah, sure you do. Let's unpack this, shall we? Why the focus for a mayor whose city is a cautionary tale of lawlessness, violence, murder, gangbangers shooting it out all the time, more bodies piling up in Chicago than in whole other large industrialized nations and piling up in one weekend than other countries, entire countries will have in a weekend. Large countries. Why is that? Why is that happening? Oh, because we need an assault rifle ban. You know, I watched a few episodes. I couldn't get through anymore. I watched a few episodes of the West Wing because it's now available on Netflix. And it's just funny because it is a window or really a time machine back to the lifestyle liberalism of the 90s, where it was really just about um, gun control and and feminism and worshiping unions. I mean, this is what this is what the 90s were all about for liberals, but gun control in particular. And we've done this. We've run the experiments they wanted us to. We've banned. Uh, they say things like ban assault rifles. Does anyone want to just take a guess? I mean, how much of the violence in uh, the city of Chicago involves assault rifles? I mean, I would place a monetary bet with somebody that it's less than one percent. But ban assault rifles, that's no, that's a talking point that Democrats say to make it seem like they're serious about stopping crime. Make it seem like they actually have ideas about this. More gun control. Yes, because gangbangers who will shoot up a funeral and hit over a dozen people, murder people in broad daylight at a funeral. When they find out that it's illegal to buy a gun without a background check, they're going to say, whoa, whoa. I'm just in this for the drive-bys. I don't want any of that heat from missing the background check. When you think through what they say, when you think through what the Democrats, what Lori Lightfoot says, it's stupid. It's not going to make anyone safer. It's not going to make anything better. This is a problem for them. If they had a media that wasn't completely, I, I don't know, I say in their pocket, but they're just... The media is the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party is the media. It's the same thing, really. There's, there's, there's almost no separation whatsoever. I mean, they're just, you know, DNC had on, CNN had on. DNC had on, CNN. It's the same thing. But if they actually had people that were there to bring facts and ask real questions, they'd say, the mayor of Chicago, you've already created a gun-free zone practically in Chicago, the strictest gun laws anywhere in the nation except for New York City. 
and you got guns flooding and you're saying, well, they're coming from other states. Well, guess what? There's over 300 million guns already in circulation. So you really think that that gangbangers aren't going to be able to buy guns illegally without a background check, even if you say that there's going to be mandatory background checks? What? Who are the only people that are stopped by the Lori Lightfoots of the world, the de Blasio's of the world, these Democrat mayors, the only people that are stopped from getting firearms are people like me. If it were reasonable to get a firearm, and I'm still thinking about going through the process, although ugh, if it were, but it's been really shut down for a while now because of COVID, it, all the delays and everything. Um, but they stopped me from getting a gun, so I can't defend my home. And, and there has been looting and rioting on my block. And I'm not allowed to defend my home. No, no, no. I, I'm subject to calling the police who are subject to being told, whoa, whoa, you can't actually arrest that career criminal and throw him on the ground if he re- resists arrest and, you know, use force. You can't do that. That looks that looks bad. Don't you know about systemic oppression? You can't do that. Say, well, hold on. What does systemic oppression have to do with any of this? Whether a person is. White, black, Hispanic, any race. They break the law. They should be, they should be uh, held responsible, and the police should have the backing of political authorities to use force as necessary. Oh, no, Buck, we have, to, we have to start balancing these things out differently now in our public discourse. It's just all blather. It's all nonsense. You want Chicago to be safer? Federal resources going after gangs, which are already used at some level, but we just talked to the attorney general about this yesterday with Operation Legend. Federal resources to go after the criminality is clearly helpful. And the mayor of Chicago should be thankful for this. She should be saying, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much to President Trump. And instead, she slaps him down and acts like he's the problem, you know, that Trump is the issue. Or if you're Kamala Harris, uh, you, you'll just say that, he doesn't he doesn't care about anybody. Play 16. America is crying out for leadership. Yet we have a president who cares more about himself than the people who elected him. A president who is making every challenge we face even more difficult to solve. But here's the good news. We don't have to accept the failed government of Donald Trump and Mike Pence in just 83 days. We have a chance to choose a better future. Sure we do. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Big day for the Trump team on foreign policy. Figure that we should spend a couple moments on this one. Here he is announcing a historic peace deal between Israel and the UAE that was brokered and, and assisted along by the Trump administration. Well, thank you very much. This is very important. This is a big event, and I want to just congratulate all of the people standing behind me because they have done an incredible job. This is something that hasn't been done in more than 25 years. Just a few moments ago, I hosted a very special call with two friends, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, where they agreed to finalize a historical peace agreement. Everybody said this would be impossible. And as you know, Mohammed is one of the great leaders of the Middle East. After 49 years, Israel and the United 
Arab Emirates will fully normalize their diplomatic relations. They will exchange embassies and ambassadors and begin cooperation across the board and on a broad range of areas, including tourism, education, healthcare, trade, and security. This is a truly historic moment, not since the Israel-Jordan peace treaty was signed more than 25 years ago has so much progress been made towards peace in the Middle East. By uniting two of America's closest and most capable partners in the region, something which said could not be done, this deal is a significant step towards building a more peaceful, secure, and prosperous Middle East. There you have it. Now, this has been trending in this direction a little bit for a while. Let's just let's look at this for a moment as a, just a general foreign policy issue, and then we'll talk about the Trump campaign, the Trump team, and what this means for them. The Obama administration was doing everything it could to placate Iran and clear an Iran, an eventual Iranian path to uh, a nuclear power status. I know the libs always argue about this, but that's the truth. Okay, Iran was getting richer, more enmeshed, more entrenched the international financial community, allowing to build up all of its conventional military capabilities, allowed to continue using its proxies and spreading terror all throughout the Middle East. And at the end of it, they're still going to have all the all the know how and facilities necessary to just be unstoppable in their quest to get uh, nuclear weapons. So that meant that even some of the remember Iran is the Shia the, the biggest Shia Muslim state in the world. Gosh, we, we used to talk about Islam on this show and Islamic issues and, and terrorism and jihad and all this stuff all the time. Remember that? I first got into the radio business and got into media, and you had the rise of, well, you had the Syrian civil war and the rise of ISIS and uh, U.S. operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and you know, ISIS's export of terror all over the world. You had ISIS franchises popping up in Somalia and Nigeria and Egypt and all all over the place. Uh, you know, it, it was Afghanistan. I mean, there, there were ISIS franchises all, and we used to spend so much time. That was the primary national security challenge, and it just faded to a point where now I can't even remember the last time I had to say radical Islam or jihadism on air of any kind. I know this is a bit of a of an aside. This is a little soliloquy I'm doing, although I guess it's on radio, so. Uh, but this is a, a soliloquy. No, you could do a soliloquy on radio, on stage, on radio. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, this was something that we used to talk about all the time. I remember going into pretty in-depth discussions on the original Saturday show, OSS, about the difference between Shia and Sunni and the the history of different great Islamic battles and all that. This is such a more of a part of... And now in the Middle East, we're like, eh... You know, we don't need the oil, and as long as there's not anybody trying to blow up a plane, and we're going to be like, you guys do your thing. I mean, we've had a big shift away from the Middle East. I think it's a good thing. I'll also say there's some pretty uh, prominent conservatives out there who gave me a little bit, little bit of a hard time, a little bit of a hard time. They tried to, at least. When I was saying we don't want a further military intervention in Syria, the Kurds are not all going to die, everyone needs to calm down. And I was right. That was a couple of years ago. I remember I debated on the main stage at CPAC with uh, who's the guy, kind of a big, big guy uh, over at the Washington Post. Uh, I don't remember. His, I don't remember his name. Um, but anyway, we debated on the main stage and nice guy. I don't I don't I'm not forgetting his name. Oh, Mark Thiessen, Mark Thiessen. Um But, uh, you know, we debated this issue and he was a send the troops wherever there's bad guys. 
that was anywhere in the world, wherever there's bad guys, we got to send troops. And I was like, ah, we've been doing a lot of that. Let's not do that. Let's pull troops out of Syria as much as we can, at least as soon as we can. And I think that was certainly the, the correct point of view. Um, I also think the Trump administration has been unfortunately stopped from uh, pulling pulling the plug on U.S. Uh, U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan, or at least the active duty deployment of thousands and thousands of troops there. And, and that's a shame because we, we need we, you know, we need to stop and let, let, let the rest of the world do what it does. As much as we can, where it doesn't affect U.S. interests, you know, we we have learned lessons about trying to remold the Middle East, everything else. And the best thing is to say, OK, who are our allies, who are our enemies, work with our allies, marginalize, undermine and when necessary, um, use force against our enemies, but only when absolutely necessary and as a last result. And try to get the regional players to play more in their region, you know, to have a, have a bigger role. I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time talking about the foreign policy interests of Israel because I prefer to spend time talking about the domestic interests of the United States. Uh, but this is this is good for the region. And this is uh, for me, more importantly, well, I shouldn't say more importantly, but more on the radar for what we're all looking at here in this country. It just goes to show you that the Trump team for all the talk about how, oh, Trump is going to destroy NATO. Oh, my God. No, he's not. <laughs> okay, that didn't happen. Trump is going to start a war with North Korea. Trump is going to start a war with Iran. All this stuff that we always hear. Nah, didn't happen. Didn't happen. Now, the North Korean diplomacy did not bear fruit. Really. I, I know some of you are going to say, Buck, but the missiles stopped. Uh, yeah, but we were hoping for more than that. And it's been a few years here, and it really hasn't. And look, it was a long, it was thr- it was a long bomb. Whoops, probably not the right term, but it was a long bomb in the end zone, you know. And they didn't they didn't pick it off and run it back for a touchdown, but uh, we didn't we didn't get what we were looking for on that one. But remember, the way that the Trump team has approached this is not to make blunders and to take uh, to to do outreach or to to take action in areas where the blowback possibility or the risk of of losses on our side are very are very minor, very small. Um, they're not non-existent, but but very small. You see that Trump has been able to marginalize Iran from the international community, pull this out of the disastrous JCPOA, right? The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Trump Trump managed to do all of these things. And he was supposed to be the weakest of, of all the stuff that he brought to table as commander in chief, the area the Democrats were so certain he was going to be the least competent. I mean, and they there were a lot of places. But the, the main place was on foreign policy. They really thought that that's where they were going to be able to just hammer him. And uh, you compare the first four years of Trump foreign policy, to the first four years of Obama foreign policy. No question Trump has been better. And not better because I like it more. Not better because, ooh, I want to root for Yay, Trump. No, Trump has been better because U.S. interests have been more supported. Americans are not dying for policies, for uh, strategies that no one can even really articulate, at least certainly not in the numbers they were. Uh, and and we're not extending ourselves in places where we shouldn't be and also trusting entities that are really enemies of the United States. Remember, the Obama foreign policy in the Middle East was 
to get a foreign policy legacy for Obama. They were willing to do anything, anything else uh, to, to appease Iran. So Syria policy collapsed and uh, the whole region caught, fl- caught up in flames and Iraq was uh, a complete mess. And the Islamic State made it, what, 40, 50 miles from Baghdad at one point? A total disaster. And you're not going to hear anybody talking about this, but Trump foreign policy is pretty good. It's we got our own stuff to deal with. We'll be nice to our friends. We're going to slap down our enemies and we're not going to involve ourselves in stuff that isn't really all about us. And if we can bring two uh, you know, responsible parties together like the UAE and Israel and to do good things, great. And they did put a win up on the board. But now let's get back to winning the election. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a while since we've had this esteemed gentleman on the show. We're glad to have him back. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is with us now. He's an author, commentator, former congressman, and of course, veteran. Also the author of the book, Hold Texas, Hold the Nation. Lieutenant Colonel West, great to have you, sir. Good to be with you, Buck. Thanks for having me. It's been too long. How are we doing right now in this fight against the left and the Democrats to get President Trump and the Republican Party, hopefully along with him, reelected? How, how are we doing in this uh, in this election cycle so far, in your opinion? Well, I will tell you, I'd like to use the uh, the phrase from uh, Admiral Yamamoto after they bombed Pearl Harbor when he said that I fear that I have awakened the sleeping giant. And I think that's exactly what has happened here in the United States of America. We have a very clear choice. Either we stand for the rule of the law or we allow the rule of the mob. And when you look at all the video that's coming out of Portland, Seattle, uh, Chicago, New York City, uh, I was talking to some friends up in New York City, and they say that it's basically like being in a gulag up there. The American people don't want that as their future. They don't want socialism, Marxism, communism. They don't want to have people that are going out into their streets and threatening them and coercion, violence, intimidation tactics. And even here in the great state of Texas, we've seen Antifa and Black Lives Matter try to you know, stir up that type of chaos and confusion. So uh, I believe that you're going to see an incredible turnout, and I believe that you're going to see a resounding defeat for the Democrat Party. Do you think that you know BLM, based on the polls that we saw a couple of months ago, was people were saying and the media was, of course, touting this poll. It was overwhelmingly popular as a movement with the American people. Uh, it went away back under the Obama administration. We all remember it started with uh, Michael Brown and, and Ferguson and it, it faded out. And probably because there were a few law enforcement officers, most notably in Texas, in Dallas, uh, almost uh, I believe it was six officers who were murdered by a BLM supporter. Five. And then all of a sudden five. five. Thank you, sir. Five who were murdered by a BLM supporter. And it went away. Uh, Do you think that we're at a point now where BLM has become, at least for mainstream Democrats running for office, a liability going into this fall? Well, it is a liability. And, you know, when you look at the fact that you have so many of the uh, Democrats out there that are somewhat trying to embrace it, they're definitely not speaking out about it. The head of the New York City BLM uh, movement said that if we our demands aren't met, we're going to burn the system down. You see in Chicago where the head of the BLM said that uh, if our demands aren't met, uh, we're not going to we're going to continue to loot. And they're advocating for people to go out and loot stores because that's part of reparations. You look at the website, you look and understand what they stand for. 
BLM, Black Lives Matter, is not dealing with anything that is affecting the black community. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest issues in the black community is fatherlessness. You only have 24% of young black children have a mother and father in the home. But yet, when you go to their website, Black Lives Matter is against the traditional nuclear two-parent household. They're not talking about school choice. They're not talking about better education or economic opportunities in our inner cities. They're definitely not talking about criminal justice reform. These are all the things that the uh, Republican Party and conservatives are talking about. And I think that you're going to see uh, a good deal of the black community that's going to reject this far left uh, approach, even though Joe Biden did select Kamala Harris to be his running mate. Speaking to Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, author, commentator, former member of Congress, also author of Hold Texas, Hold the Nation. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, are, are we we're, we're going to hold Texas? How are we looking elsewhere? I mean, you're also a man who knows Florida quite well. How do you think we're going to do there? Well, you know, I don't know it as good as I, I did. I've been out here in Texas now enjoying myself for the past six years. And, you know, I'm the chairman of the Republican Party here now uh, going into my my first month in that position. But I still think as well, when you look at the fact that the left is really embracing this far, you know, socialist Marxist approach, you've got a lot in the Hispanic community there, especially Venezuelans uh, down in South Florida and also Cubans. They don't want to see that which they fled from Venezuela and Cuba to take root in the United States of America. So I think that uh, Florida is going to be successful as well. Well, but you have to be concerned, of course, without a doubt, with the uh, exodus of so many people from California, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, many of them moving into Tennessee, Florida, even here into Texas, that they cannot bring those failed ideologies with them from whence they were fleeing. And I want to ask your opinion of the ticket now that we know what it is. Biden, Kamala Harris. What do you make of Kamala Harris as a political opponent? Obviously, you're not a, you're not a Harris supporter. Neither am I. Right. So we, we can yeah. we know that. But what do you think of her? How you know, you're somebody who understands wargaming very well, Lieutenant Colonel. How do you wargame her as an opponent here in politics going into this uh, this November decision point? Well, as the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, she just made my job incredibly easy. I mean, here's a person that embraces the Green New Deal. The last thing that anyone in Texas wants to hear is that you want to get rid of the oil and gas industry in the next 10 to 12 years. She doesn't believe that people should have uh, private health insurance. That's something that she said. And we are a border state, and she believes that uh, the border should be open and that illegal immigrants should get free health care. Texas is the number one state in the United States of America for human and sex trafficking. And we have a ticket with... uh, former Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris, they believe in open borders, decriminalizing crossing our border illegally. What does that tell you, uh, their concerns about the young men and young women that are being trafficked right here in the great state of Texas? So she's going to be a gift that will keep on giving and will draw that clear delineation. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, author, commentator, former congressman. Oh, wait, before we let you go, sir, I wanted to also just see how are you doing in, in Texas right now with COVID? Uh, I had a lot of listeners because we have we have a great audience in Texas and particularly in the Austin area, uh, KLBJ Austin. We had a lot of listeners writing in saying that they were very disappointed that Texas seemed to be uh, locking down hard. And, you know, the they were starting to believe some of the more extreme uh, mandates were necessary in the fight against COVID. How, how are you doing and how do you see the way forward for your for your state? Well, without a doubt, I think the most important thing is that we have to focus uh, on the most uh, severely affected demographics. 
Uh, when you look, the median age for COVID-19 deaths is 78, which is really about the life expectancy age for the United States of America. So we have to protect our senior citizens. But we also need to make sure that we are doing the things that enable us to continue to be the 10th largest economy in the world, making sure that our oil and gas industry stays viable. So when you look at the numbers, Buck, I mean, 29 million people here in Texas, uh, really about 0.04% have lost their lives due to COVID-19. So I think that we need to be sensible and not allow this to become a political issue, treat it as a medical issue. Senator Colonel Allen West, always great to have you, sir. Come back soon. Let's talk to you before this election actually happens. Thanks so much, Buck. Take care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. My buddy is back, everyone. Sagar and Jetty in the house. He is uh, a co-host of uh, a show called... um, well, it's on Hill TV, and I actually rising. <laughs> so I was about to call it real news. No, everyone, look, this was I Come used on, to be a host man. of the show, so I, I didn't forget it on purpose. Yeah, I that's right. To, I swear to God, I was about to call it real news, which is what I did at the Blaze. I'm so sorry, Sagar. Rising, a great show on YouTube and on thehill.com called Rising. I was a co host there. Sagar sits now in the conservative chair holding it down with our mutual buddy. Crystal Ball, representing the left-wing point of view. Check it out on YouTube. Follow Sagar on Twitter. Mr. Sagar, good to have you back, buddy. Good to see you, Buck. How are you, man? I mean, I'm in New York. You're in D.C. I feel like we're both living in these very expensive prisons run by idiots. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right, Buck. I mean, you know, life here has basically been terrible for the last five (laughs) months. Um, And the only time it's been good is whenever I left. So there you go. There we go. So I want to ask you about. So so here's my my take on the on the Kamala Biden ticket is that in a way this is just seeing once again, if the Democrat elites can convince enough normal Americans that is, the far left does not like either of these candidates. We know that, right? These are not the Democrat socialist to prove it's not Warren or Bernie or any. So it's not the real hardcore base of the party. And they're going to try to get the sort of middle of America voters to think that Biden's not scary and crazy. But talk to me about why the elites like particularly Kamala Harris in tech on Wall Street. Yeah, Buck, the reason they love her is because she's somebody who appears to be moderate, right? And this is the thing. Our political language is broken. Everybody's like, oh, Kamala Harris is so moderate. It's like, well, we don't have the language currently to describe somebody who's like pro-reparations, anti-ICE, you know, basically pro-open borders, but also pro-Wall Street, right? So what they love about her is that they can say she's the most progressive, right? That's what what you're alluding to. They're trying to con younger, normal Americans to say, no, 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 she's one of you. She's a progressive person. While at the same time, she's a stooge of them. This is the best part, right? Like, do you know how Biden tested his vice presidency? Given his mental capacity, you would think like, you know, they want somebody with the, you know, affairs of the world. You want somebody who's so experienced. No, here's what he did. He basically gave every prospect the ability to headline a Wall Street fundraiser. Whoever brought in the most cash, that person got the vice president. You guessed it, Kamala Harris. She's the one who Wall Street and Silicon Valley, I mean, she really represents Silicon Valley. They loved her whenever she was a candidate, even though no actual citizens liked her. And then whenever she was a VP prospect, 
She headlined these events for Biden, raised a boatload of cash. That's what this is all about, Buck. It's about they want to be able to go scot-free in a Biden administration and then let them push all this race, identitarian, immigration nonsense. And the rest of us are the ones who get screwed. Why do you what do you think is the reason or what are the reasons that the the Democrat elites I mean, they wanted remember, it's not like, oh, Kamala is acceptable to them. They were all, you know, and I'm sorry, journalists, obviously, I I consider them the poorly paid Democrat elites, right? Journos are the ones they're like clinging on to their rich cousins in the in the tech and and Hollywood, uh, you know, oligarchy, but uh, and Wall Street, which people wait, can we just do a little side here? Um, and I was about to call you Tucker, geez, because you're on Tucker's show all the time. Sagar, uh, <laughs> when are people going to realize that Wall Street is Democrat now? How, how do we get this to change? Wall Street, the big hedge funds, Goldman Sachs, they are Democrat yeah. packs. Yeah, they have been for a long time, Buck. I mean, that's the truth. And look, like you can go. I don't need you don't need to believe Buck. You don't need to believe me. You don't need to believe Tucker. Go look at the money. There's a graphic in Bloomberg. It shows you there's only one guy on Wall Street who's really giving Trump any money right now, Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone. Everybody else is going for Biden. A lot of the people there from 2016 who supported Trump, gone. They're all in favor of Biden and of Kamala Harris. So look, when the richest people in the country are all backing somebody, they did not get rich out of the goodness of their hearts, okay? There's something going on. Now, Biden promised these people behind closed doors in an openly reported Pool report. You can go see it. It's a quote. He told Wall Street, quote, nothing will fundamentally change. Well, we're living through what the most transformative economic moment, like in probably a hundred years. That's a great message if you were living on Wall Street. And it, look, these people, what I love about them is how naked they are. Front page of the Wall Street Journal today says Wall Street size relief because of Kamala Harris, right? First article, first CNBC article that's in reaction to Kamala Harris says, Wall Street approves of Kamala Harris. Now, again, these people don't approve because they're, you know, they're like social justice warriors, although they do support social justice causes for the rest of us while they continue to make billions and billions of dollars. They do it because they know they're going to get away. And I think that Tucker said it best, which is that private equity barons are the ones who are happiest to keep Americans divided amongst race lines while their taxes get cut in half. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen under their administration. Yes, I always think of the the checks that flow from Hollywood ultra millionaires. And really that you're talking about producers and, you know, studio execs, although not as much anymore as you are this. the very well known, you know, famous actors who are always writing checks, uh, checks for climate change. It's like indulgences in the medieval church. You know, they're 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 sending these checks to social justice causes so that they can continue to find tax shelters and fly private, right? Like we, we all know how the lifestyle liberalism, yeah, exactly. how the lifestyle liberalism game works. You know, Sagar, we're speaking of Sagar and Jetty. He is co-host of Rising on Hill TV. You, should, you guys should be following him on Twitter. He's also a regular guest on a Tucker Carlson show, which I think, well, I'll say I think is the best show on Fox News. I won't speak for Sagar. Um, at Tucker, I, I did it. Absolutely. It just happened. I'm sorry. I don't know why. It's stuck <laughs> in my head. Sagar, not Tucker. Sagar, um, <laughs> You often are are uh, out there making the case about big tech. We had these hearings recently. We covered it here on the show. Um, are we going to see any change with any of this? Because now more than ever, it seems apparent to me, two things. One, big tech is so much more powerful. This isn't like, 
one company on Wall Street that's having a really good year. They are, I mean, they're monopolies, right? So they're, they're so powerful and they're so politically aligned with the Democrat Party in ways that people, I think, are just really beginning to grasp. But is anything going to change? We had these hearings, some good speeches. Josh Hawley's smart on this issue. There are some people that make a lot of sense. But I feel like we're all still going to be buying all of our stuff from Amazon. No, you, there you go. That's it, Buck, which is that big tech has bought both liberals and conservatives. And now, even though they might be liberals, conservatives are allowing themselves to really get conned by this issue. And you're right, which is, yeah, the hearings by and large, I mean, some of it was okay, but the Republican Party needs to step up. They need to start actually fighting on behalf of their voters. Because ask yourself this, if AT&T, the Bell Company, and your vital, you know, like say your Verizon internet service, were liberal. And let's say even then, okay, they are liberal, but they don't mess with how you, who you talk to on the phone, how you conduct yourself on your internet or other things. That's essentially the version of big tech in terms of how you and I communicate with each other on different social platforms, on how you and, you and I buy things online, like say Amazon. One of the things that's an amazing statistic is that 82% of American households have Amazon Prime. Okay, there are not 82 percent of American households that do anything else that they have in common, maybe eating, sleeping and breathing. That's about it. Right. There are less Americans who buy Christmas trees than who have Amazon Prime memberships. So at this point, Amazon Prime is like American as apple pie. Shouldn't Congress be interested in like, I don't know, at least knowing how they conduct businesses and knowing whether they're discriminating against you or I, since it's, it's almost up there in terms of a public utility, there are public utilities that less people use than Amazon Prime, just to give you an example. So at this point, there is something where conservative lawmakers need to update the way that they think about this stuff and say, hey, you know what? This it falls within my purview. But a lot of them are just not there yet, Buck. Change it how, Sagar? How could, how could we make the changes needed in mm-hmm. big tech? Well, see, this is, the, this is such a hard question because... What the reason I was really against the way that those hearings were conducted is Amazon is e-commerce, Apple is a hardware company, Facebook is a social media platform, and who was the fourth one who was up there? Was it uh, so we had Facebook? Oh, Google, and Google is a search engine, right? Those are four distinct monopolies. Those are four distinct industries. So the same fix doesn't apply to all of those. But what does apply is what what I talked about was this change in thinking, ideology, to admit that hey. It's okay as a Republican, you can be for free markets and you can be for competition and for free speech and many of the other things that we hold dear in our society, our constitution, our way of life, and be okay with telling this business, which has so much power over the way that you and I conduct our lives, to say, hey, you know what? If you're going to, you know, kowtow to the Chinese government, that's not okay. You're not allowed to do business here then. Or if you are going to discriminate against your conservative customers, then it's actually on us to say, no, we're going to protect your rights as an American citizen to be able to maintain your ability to speak in a free public square, as we have always guaranteed you since 1776. That's the way that we have to change it. We have to change the way that we start to think. So before that, then we can get to policy changes. Where should folks go to get more of Sagar and Jetty's wisdom? Uh, well, The Hill on YouTube and uh, Twitter.com slash Esager, E-S-A-A-G-A-R. There it is. My man, Sager. Have a great one, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What does diversity training have to do with a nuclear lab, or as President Bush used to say, a nuclear lab? What does it have to do with it? Well, this coming courtesy of the uh, Washington Free Beacon, there's a federally funded nuclear weapons laboratory that made their white male employees participate in racial re-education training. Oh, my. This piece by Alex Nestor, quote, Sandia National Laboratories, a government contracted nuclear weapons laboratory, required its white male employees to participate in a racial re-education seminar leaked documents reveal. At the three-day training session called White Men's Caucus on Eliminating Racism, Sexism, and Homophobia in Organizations, Participants were encouraged to examine their privilege as white heterosexual men. Christopher Rufo, a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, he's a guy who also got those documents from a Seattle diversity training that I've read, I've read to you here on the show. He has leaked documents from a seminar, so this wasn't even a FOIA request. He got leaked documents. And oh, here we go. This is a nuclear, nuclear research facility, folks. Federally funded, okay? The federal government's running a research facility for nukes. And we need people to be like, check your privilege. Quote, trainers asked participants to think of words associated with white male culture and created a list in, which included KKK, privileged and MAGA hat. <laughs> MAGA hat is a privilege? Producer Mark, did you know that? I was unaware. MAGA hat is considered a privilege. But to buy a Team Buck hat on the website would be considered just a smart thing to do as soon as we actually have that, which we don't yet. I'm talking to our digital team. It's you're not just, on producer Mark. We you're got just a digital teasing team. people now. They, what? You're just teasing people now. No, but I keep getting told this week, this week, and it hasn't. I know. And there's also there's another thing, a podcast about a small island in the central Mediterranean where there was a pivotal battle in 1565. I don't know. It's going to happen. Yeah. So except expect Team Buck merchandise by what, 2024 or so? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mark is the ombudsman for all of you who remind me of, of things that I've said are going to happen that haven't happened yet. So don't worry. It's going to happen. Anyway, trainers asked participants to think of words associated with white male culture and created a list in which uh, which included KKK privilege and MAGA hat. An example of systemic privilege, according to one document, is having role models in the public eye that outweigh the Ted Kaczynski's of white maleness. I don't even know what that means. R role models that outweigh the Ted Kaczynski's of white maleness? Quote, I routinely witness and benefit from the many positive white male role models displayed in the media, politics, and entertainment that far outweigh the Tim McVeigh's and Ted Kaczynski's of white maleness, the document reads. One document said rugged individualism, a can-do attitude, and operating from principles and conscience are vestigial attitudes that once helped white men survive. Another listed statements of privilege, which included assertions like white privilege is being the first in line, first to be served, first to be noticed, first to be listened to, and that men can ogle women and get a pass from their po uh, colleagues. Participants wrote apology messages to women, people of color, and other groups as a reflection at the end of the seminar. This is a religious belief now, friends. 
They, this is religious indoctrination because liberalism, liberalism killed God, right? They've eliminated God. We all know that. And now that they've eliminated God, they've replaced God with this state. But they've also they've also included in that in order to control us this indoctrination of the separate uh, separateness of us all by immutable characteristics and to turn us on each other based upon that. And this is this is also intersectionality. You don't hear that term as much anymore. But that was the in vogue term in academia and liberal circles for what this is. Intersectionality is just you are in constant conflict with everyone in society around you who is different from you in different ways. And the most uh, the, the most guilty of creating such conflicts and the ones and the ones who are the only ones who will be held responsible for creating all such conflicts are white males. White males are in a tough category with regard to that. Interesting that uh, this is what we're all supposed to accept. We're being trained. We're being taught now that this is uh, and, and being taught using federal dollars that white males need to just constantly be sorry. And I can tell you this much. I have yet to meet a white male who has gone to any of these trainings and said, yeah, you know, I'm really glad I learned to confront my systemic racism. But I worked in the federal government. I worked for local government in New York. And I know that we do a lot of these similar similar trainings. And one thing I always thought, here, here's just an example. One thing I was kind of funny was that whenever we were doing uh, terrorism training, when I was working um, and this was outside contract. This wasn't classified stuff. This was more of the you know, procedures and all that that you'd have. Uh, when I would do terrorism training stuff, it was always a guy named Phil who was some white Aryan nation uh, guy wanted to blow up a building or something. That was always the it was never anybody that would be associated with, oh, I don't know. ISIS or jihadism for all the training modules. It was always a guy named Phil who lives next door to you in the suburbs. And, you know, is uh, just a little too patriotic. So he wants to blow things up. That was the the examples that they, the make believe examples they would always use. But this political correctness has infected the entire federal government. It's affected our entire culture. And it is it is absurd, but it is also damaging and is destructive. And I, I think a part of this as well is not only is it wasteful, but it's counterproductive. So it's dumb. And if anything, I think it works against the intended purpose because the commentary, for example, in those terrorism trainings, when we walk out of them among everybody who was really doing that work day in and day out was, oh, OK, I'm glad we need to be on the lookout for our neighbor named Phil who wants to blow up a federal building when we're handling 97% of the cases we're seeing right now that are federal terrorism cases are jihadism related. But, but I'm glad we're worried about our neighbor, Phil. You know, that's the reaction that people actually have to these things. But libs don't care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call, everybody. If you want to be a part of the Roll Call action, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Send a message on Instagram, the gram. 
as the kids call it. I think if you say as the kids call it, you're not cool, though. Um, that's, what, that's what I've been told by the kids, as it were. Uh, on the gram, Buck Sexton. And then uh, if you want to send an email, kick it old school, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. And producer Mark, what's your fax number? I don't have a fax. Just my checking, apologies. just making sure yeah. you're not napping on us. You know what I mean? I don't think yeah. I've had a fax in my home in 20 years. Just making sure, you hmm. know, keeping you, on your, keeping you on your toes. You yeah. have seen Office Space, right? Yes. Right, where they, where they destroy the, uh, the copy machine. That's how I've always felt about fax machines. You want to just destroy them? Yeah, they're evil, evil devices that are always meant to fail. All right. Kind of like Democrat policies in cities. Ho! Let's get to it. Um, Adam, Buck, for the Producer Mark t-shirt, I think it should say, Where is my Malta podcast? Shields high. Oh, Producer Mark, apparently you have cousins who are writing in this week, huh? <laughs> I did not write that one, but that is hilarious. <laughs> we have like a little island of Malta that we put on it, just with a question mark, and then have Producer Mark written on the back of the t-shirt. Uh, that would work, actually. It'd be kind of fun. Uh, I, I don't know. How hard would it be for us if I if we wanted to bring back the character Kami Bear, which I don't even think you're familiar with, to do like a little bear cartoon that we could put up on Instagram and stuff? Do we, would that be doable? What do you think now? I'm an animator. I don't do enough. I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, isn't there probably some computer program we could make like a little stupid bear? And, you know, I don't uh, know. Probably. Yeah, I'm sure we'll do that very soon. To the I, listeners. Add it to the I list. Just, uh, yeah, add it to the list. We'll get to it. What did I, when did I say the T-shirts would be ready? Two you years after me, that. You, okay, you did tell me don't bring up the T-shirts till we have them. And technically you were correct. That yeah. is fair. Because I was all excited. I should have like, no said fun. that about the Malta podcast, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. People are like, what? Look, as soon as I have all the podcast drops, I better see people passing the buck like wildfire because this is just a labor of love. Doing a free history podcast because I love this team so much. All right. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. Michael, Buck, yesterday you failed to report. Whoa, whoa. Sorry. You failed to report the most important news that was reported yesterday that Trump supported with major contributions Kamala Harris's campaigns. Actually, he supported many major Democrats such as Schumer and Pelosi. But it explains well this paraphrase. Of course I did. I'm a businessman and had to grease the skids to get projects working. He also noted from time to time he had to work with organized criminals, but he had more respect for them because they kept the promises they made. Um, I don't think that's major news, man. I mean, look, a lot of... Uh, uh, Michael, thanks for writing in, but a lot of people, especially that are b- businessmen in major cities, they'll just give money to all the political candidates. It's just hedging their bets. They'll just give money to whoever they can give money to. That's what they do. You know, that's that's the way it is. Um, people do that also with prosecutors. Which I got to tell you, if someone's running for district attorney, and you have the money. Give a little money to every uh, district attorney that's going to run. If you can afford it, it's not a bad move. If you're a rich person, a little only, I think you'd only give whatever. The, I don't even know what the max was. It twenty five hundred dollars or something. I don't know what the max is for these. I that's the funny thing. We have all these rules about elections. No one even knows them. No one even really understands any of this stuff. Oh, but, you know, it's going to keep us all safe from corroding our democracy. Yeah, democracy's pretty corroded. Hate to say it. Mike writes, hey, Buck, you and Mark are killing it on the show. Keep up the great work. Mike, you have excellent taste. Just wanted to ask if you could explain the term gaslighting. I loosely understand it, but wanted your own explanation. For whatever reason, my Joe Biden brain makes me think of an old gas lantern anytime someone uses it. P.S. I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, wow. 
Team Buck New Zealand. And it looks like our manic socialist leader is forcing us into lockdown version two scary times. Yep, you're going to have... I'm sorry to hear that about New Zealand, man. I've been seeing this. New Zealand has a super strict lockdown in place. Keep doing it. Going to keep going through it until there's a vaccine. Keep going through it. Okay. People think that's the move. Notice how even in the even in a, a small island nation with the most extreme precautions, they still have outbreaks of the virus because the virus is going to virus. We'll see. Uh, oh, as for gaslighting, I don't know where the term comes from. I can just tell you what it means. Um, gaslighting is when someone intentionally tells int- intentionally takes a position or says something that they know to be untrue as a means of undermining your own grip on reality and, and also as being kind of passive aggressive. Right. So, yeah, that's that's gaslighting, saying something obviously untrue and taking that position as a form of rhetorical attack. Here, let, let me actually I'm curious if I were to read um, if I were to take a, a definition of gaslighting off the Internet, let me see what it says. Gaslighting a form of yeah, a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or group covertly sows seeds of doubt, making them question their own memory, often evoking in them cognitive dissonance and other changes, including low self-esteem, using denial, misdirection, contradiction and misinformation. The term originated. Oh, this is fascinating. I'm learning something here. The term originated, this is all from Wikipedia, by the way, which journos I know are not supposed to ever use, but I'm not a journo, so screw it. The term originated from the British play Gaslight, 1938, but originally performed as Angel Street in the United States, and it's 1940 and 44 film adaptations. The term has now been used in clinical psychological literature, as well as in political commentary and philosophy. Interesting. Interesting. In interpersonal relationships, the victimizer needs to be right in order to preserve their own sense of self and their sense of having power in the world. And the victim allows the victimizer to define their sense of reality inasmuch as the victim idealizes them and seeks their approval. The psychological manipulation may include making the victim question their own memory, perception, and sanity. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, you know, it'd be like if you hit somebody, I didn't hit you. What are you talking about? I didn't hit you. That's like classic gaslighting. If you hit somebody... And then five minutes later, you're like, I didn't hit you. Gaslighting. How easy uh, must it be to do that to Joe Biden? What if, who did what? How easy must it be oh, to yeah. gaslight He's Joe like, Biden? Oh, you didn't hit me. You didn't hit me. Bruce and Mark, I want you to check out my leg hairs, man. They're blonde from the sun. It's amazing. Long blonde leg hairs on Joe Biden. You want to check them out? I, I do not know. Mm. Jonathan, hey, Buck, shield's high. I listened to your comments about the five-year-old in Wilson who was executed. You are correct. This story has even been touched by the local media. Had the situation been reversed, the city of Raleigh would probably be in flames right now. Raleigh's pathetic mayor, Mary Ann Baldwin, did not allow Raleigh police to protect people and businesses back when the riots were occurring. Downtown Raleigh had made a big comeback from 20 years ago. It was thriving and alive. Baldwin set the city back 20 years. Businesses are now boarded up. Downtown is a ghost town. Baldwin was far more concerned about making sure people did not go out to bars on South Glenwood and Raleigh than she was about preventing looting and destruction. By the way, I think that's true of a lot of libs, a lot of libs, Uh, much more concerned that you wear a mask, that your business doesn't burn down. Robert, my family are big fans of your show. Your speech at the start of the second hour of Wednesday's show on the theft and others moralities is at the center of our conservative foundation. 
The one thing to hold fast to is the law-abiding side of America. I have heard several compatriots say, the sooner we as Republicans figure out that the Dems play dirty, we should too. My response is always the same. If you feel that way, you should join the Dems. Cheating to win is cowardly, and that is exactly what playing dirty is. Cheating. Well, Robert, Team Buck's a big fan of your family for being fans and being a part of what we do here. Thank you so much. Oh, one more thing he says. A coward dies a thousand deaths, but a hero only dies once. Thank you, Buck and producer Mark, for being a part of that foundation. And Sean writes, Buck, love the show. I'm hooked on the truth you tell about the state of this country. I recently read an article about NYC neighboring counties forbidding their officers from pursuing or arresting criminals once they cross an NYC proper. This being due to Comrade de Blasio's bill that limits force to apprehend a suspect. So your city will soon turn into a haven for the criminal element. Before you are in need of a rescue, see Kurt Russell and escape from New York. Get out of there. Shields high. Well, Sean, thanks for the update, my man. And I have not yet seen escape from New York, but it's on my list. I'm going to be out tomorrow. Mike Slater is going to be in for me. It's going to be a great show. Please do give Mike your, uh, your attention, team. And I'll be back on Monday. I'm going to be in Craven County, North Carolina tomorrow. Give a little GOP address. It's going to be fun. If you're in the neighborhood, come check it out. Until next time, my friends, you have your orders. Shields high.